Good morning. My name is Art. Thank you. Yes, right. This is my first time up here in our new space. <clears throat> and I want to say, you guys look really good in this space. I mean, it's, 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 I like this. This is good. In the last stanza of his uh, very famous poem, The Road Not Taken, Robert Frost wrote these words. I should be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Our passage this morning includes three run-ins between Jesus and the religious leaders of the Jews, the, the Pharisees. And in fact, these are the... Um, these are the last three of five consecutive run-ins between the two of them in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Matt handled numbers one and two over the last couple of weeks, and this morning I get to handle three of them in one week. Uh, any guesses as to who designs the teaching calendar? <laughs> These run-ins are forks in the road. Forks in the road that, that Jesus lays before the religious leaders of Judaism, and he gives them a chance to face the truth that his 30 years on earth are changing everything. They can choose either continue down the 2,000-year-old road that they've been on, or they can follow the new road that he offers. This new road's been on the drawing board forever literally forever as a part of the Father's uh, eternal plan. And their scriptures, their scriptures have been picturing it and prophesying about it for uh, a couple millennia. And now Jesus announces the grand opening of this, this new road. And Matt discussed this in, in week one in Mark 1.15 where Jesus says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the gospel changes everything. It totally redefines the good life. These leaders have been defining the good life as, a, as a, a scrupulous obedience, not only to God's law, but also to the thousands of other laws that they have added to God's law in an attempt to show what it really means to obey God's law. For example, as, as we'll see, they said that to heal on the Sabbath was work. So you could put a Band-Aid on a cut but not ointment because that was healing. Now that's the kind of stuff these three episodes revolve around. And Jesus just isn't, he just isn't into that kind of rigmarole, which by definition, you know, means baloney. You know that, don't you? Plus, many people really like what they're hearing from Jesus. And it's getting just a bit dicey for the religious leaders. Their system is what they live for. And it's taken a hit. But before we go any further, I want you to remember this. We're going to talk about the Pharisees for a while, but, but you and I may be walking in our new life with Jesus, but we still regularly come to forks in the road on our spiritual journey which demand choices. Stay on the new road or veer off a bit on the old road. Now let's start out with all honesty here this morning. You do that sometimes, don't you? 
I do. I know Matt does. We all do, right? But we don't have to. I know that every one of us in this room will go to our graves still choosing the old road at times. I know that. Perfection is not for this life, not since the fall. It's coming, but not yet. But that doesn't put on hold growth and increased spiritual maturity on a regular basis. And we find all kinds of hope for that in the word, right? Uh, For Jesus being formed in us bit by bit, day by day, sometimes a step back, but 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of my two favorite verses in the scriptures. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image that we are beholding. And the New American Standard says, uh, beholding as in a mirror. I, I really like that. We're looking at Jesus in the mirror, but it's kind of a trick mirror. And you know, we get him into us, and we begin to look like him more and more. From one glance at the mirror to another glance at the mirror. It's from one into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. And but this is crucial. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, there's no thing that's becoming holy in a hurry. This doesn't happen. And aren't you glad we have a realistic God about that? But let's look at these three episodes. And even though fasting and and Sabbath feel like the predominant theme in these verses, they're not the main point. The point is this. There is an old road and a new road to choose between. And Jesus will actually sort of implicitly name those two roads. Mark 2.22, this is part of the passage. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So in a sense, you've got old wineskin road and new wineskin road, and we regularly come up to that fork and have a choice of what we're going to do. But the good life will only be found on New Wineskin Road. So let's look at the episodes. Episode 1, Mark 2, 18 to 20. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. This is the word of the Lord. See, the Old Testament makes only one fast a year compulsory, the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees decided that maybe every Monday and Thursday would make it even better. So that's what they began to require. Now, it's not quite as sacrificial as it sounds because they only did it from 6 in the morning till 6 at night, so they basically just missed lunch. But they milked it for all they could to get points out of it. Uh, They would parade around with their faces chalked with some kind of white stuff, and they would wear clothes that looked like it had lain in the dirty clothes pile for a couple of months before they put it on. And so you've, you've got to wonder about what, what, what's their motives behind, behind all of this. But they were tenacious. And they were obsessed with busting Jesus. So they took him on. Why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus answers the question 
with a, answers with a question that just basically says, when the bridegroom is around, his attendants don't fast, they feast. Now I'm sure, I'm sure immediately they begun wondering, what in the world does that have to do with anything? But Jesus is using a very um, relevant cultural tradition to put them at a loss for words. You see, um, weddings in that day are not like our weddings today. Our weddings today are a 30-minute ceremony, then eating and drinking some really good stuff for free, um, dancing to some really hot music, congratulating the couple, and then going home to look for some Tums for the tummy. Their wedding feast went on for a week, and then they went home looking for the Tums. But the attendants as well, they were indispensable. Uh, they were responsible for all the details of the wedding. Plus, they were the guys who went with the bridegroom to the bride's home to bring her and the first day of the wedding feast back to the, the, the groom's home. And they were responsible for making sure it was a time of hilarity. In fact, a rabbinic, rabbinic ruling actually stated, all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observance, which would lessen their joy. <laughs> How about that? And that actually includes worship and fasting, and it even included prayer. This is why these guys are at a loss for words, because Jesus is claiming to be a bridegroom. You're, you're a what? And he's saying that his men are attendants. So while they're together, no fasting. In about two and a half years, when he leaves, it'll be time to fast again. But until then, but I don't think these leaders he was talking to had a clue about what he was talking about. So for now, they dropped the issue. But they're not done with Jesus. Second episode, Mark 2, 23 to 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, that means the holy bread on the table of show, place, show, uh, show uh, table of showbread, which was actually in the holy place, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to some of those who were with him, just normal guys. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus and his men weren't doing anything wrong. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says this, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. But there's just one problem. It's the Sabbath, and there was sort of a Pharisee lurking behind every grain stalk. You see, they had, uh, they had four examples of, of, of work, among many others. It was uh, reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing a meal. Those were all no-nos on the Sabbath. So when Jesus and his men picked the grain, they were reaping. When they rubbed the grain together, they were threshing. When they blew the chaff off, they were winnowing, and altogether they were preparing a meal. Pharisees' eyes, guilty on all four counts. But even their own law book, the Mishnah, 
admitted this, quote, the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair, for scripture is scanty and rules many, end quote. So being charged as lawbreakers, again, Jesus says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? And then he tells the story we read. In short, Jesus is saying, David and his men ate bread that was lawful only for the priests to eat. And he's saying, they made the connection, I'm sure, I'm David, and my guys here, they're the men with David. And they knew, the Pharisees knew, that neither David nor the priest had ever been reprimanded for doing that to meet a true human need. And Jesus is saying, we had a need. We were hungry. You think what we did was unlawful compared to David and the priest? And Jesus had them backed into a corner because they're thinking to themselves, I'm sure, do we really want to take on our hero David and an Old Testament priest to make our point? And then the knockout blow. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, we came before the Sabbath, certainly before the Sabbath was instituted as a, one of the Ten Commandments, but even before the Sabbath that God took, which really began all Sabbaths, we came first. So when it came, the Sabbath, it was for man, not man for it. See, God means it to be a blessing, not a burden. A number of us here I know have grown up in a, in a place as kids where the Sabbath was just, I mean, you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. I mean, sometimes I'll tell you all kinds of stories from my background when I was raised that way. It's incredible. But they're still not ready to throw in the towel. So episode three, a man with a withered hand, Mark 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And once again, beloved, this is the word of the Lord. And again, it's the Sabbath. And when Jesus went into the synagogue, he knew they'd be there. And when he went in, you, you, could, you couldn't miss them, all decked out in their fancy gowns and proudly sitting in the seats of honor in the synagogue. But they weren't there to worship. They were there to watch. And that word watch means to spy on, or catch this, to watch out of the corner of one's eye. It's kind of like they're sitting there, what's he going to do? I know he heals people, no matter when. Is he going to do it again? One author calls them ecclesiastical bloodhounds. Feels kind of sinister, right? Well, it actually is. And tradition says that this, uh, this guy was a stonemason who had injured his hand 
couldn't work and was ashamed to beg. So instead of that, having heard the news about Jesus healing a lot of people, he found his way to the to synagogue to, to see if Jesus would, would heal him. But here's the issue. It's, it's the Sabbath. Uh, no work. And healing was considered work. It's unbelievable to us, but here's what it was like. William Barclay writes this. Medical attention could be given only if a life was in danger. A woman in childbirth could be helped on the Sabbath. If a wall fell on anyone, enough might be cleared away to see if he was dead or alive. If he was alive, he might be helped. If he was dead, the body must be left until the next day. A fracture could not be attended to. Cold water might not be poured on a sprained hand or foot. You could keep things from getting worse. It must not be made better because that is work. Obviously, this guy could wait another day, right? I mean, who, who knows how long he's been this way? And he's not going to go to work on the Sabbath anyhow. So here's that, another test case for Jesus. And, and he was totally up to it. And he asked just two questions. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Uh, Eric Bishop says this. Those are startling extremes, right? Good or evil. You know, sometimes isn't there something in the middle of, of this thing? Eric Bishop says this, it's reminiscent of Palestinian psychology. The Semitic mind demands clear-cut decisions. There are no middle terms between doing good and doing evil, between saving a life and destroying it. The choice is absolute. Now, if you're a Pharisee, what do you say to those questions? I mean, whatever answer you give, you lose. So the text simply says, but they were silent. They had nothing to say. So Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. And interestingly, Jesus nor the man did a lick of work. Spoke a word. The guy put his hand out. Healed. We then read the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Luke's record says they were filled with fury. And that's not surprising. They'd been had and they knew it. But look who they went to. They went to the Roman Herodians. Those are the people who are sort of enslaving the Jews. They're, they're, they're masters. They have, to, they have to do what the Romans tell them to do. David McKenna says, think of it, God's specialists in salvation counseling with Caesar's specialists in human slaughter. The die was cast, the Pharisees stuck stubbornly to the old road, which put Jesus on a road to the cross. Seems like in this episode, the only winner is the man with the withered hand. Now, what does all this mean for us? I want to go back to two verses that I skipped earlier, Mark 2, 21 to 22. And they're at the end of the first episode uh, regarding fasting, but um, that's the one about Jesus and the bridegroom and the attendants. But I think where it's placed, and a number of scholars think this, where it's placed, it really is the, the principle, the driving force for probably not only the three episodes we're talking about this morning, but the five episodes in a row in Mark. And this, it says this. 
No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is fresh for fresh or new wineskins. And this also, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Now, although these two pictures, these two metaphors are tied to the first episode, um, like I said, they, they, they appear to me the, the major principle. Um, the principle is this. You can't mix the old and the new. If you try, it's basically disaster. For the Pharisees, it was Judaism and the gospel. For us, I think, it's the old life and the new life, which at times we try to mix. Let's just look at the second metaphor, the new wine and the new wineskins. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are a new wineskin. That's who you are. And you drink new wine the wine of the gospel. That's compatibility. Drinking the new wine into your new wineskin life. And the metaphor is pretty uh, graphic and it would be known by everybody uh, that was listening to Jesus. Wine was stored in those days in either sheep or goat skin and the neck area became the neck of the container. They kind of look like this. They would skin the body of a sheep or a goat. Uh, They would remove the hair tan the skin, and then sew it all together. But, but over time, the skins would age and become brittle, and that one looks kind of brittle to me. Um, store new wine in old, brittle skins, and the fermentation process of the new wine, the, the gas is being let off, and everything else that goes on, and I don't know what goes on with all that, but whatever else goes on in there, and it expands the skin, and pretty soon it No more skin and all that new wine being sucked up by the thirsty soil. Put new wine into new wineskins and they're able to flex with the process and allow the wine to to do its thing and to age and to ripen and, and, and mature. And when you and I drink new wine as new wineskins and it works itself out through us, we know it don't we? I mean, at times like that, patience wins out over impatience. Shalom, peace over anxiety. Self-control over lack of restraint. Kindness over harshness. Love toward others over indifference toward others. Generosity over selfishness, serving over demanding. Put an umbrella over that whole thing, it's that Jesus wins out over sin. It's the good life. It's the abundant life he promised. But what about those other times when impatience and lack of restraint and harshness and self, all those sort of things, or whatever, whatever our preferred sin is, What about those times when that wins out? And you do know, don't you, that you have a preferred sin or a few 
preferred sins? If you don't know what they are, just ask the person closest to you. They will inform you easily, I'm sure. And by the way, I'm using we pronoun very purposefully this morning because this is all of us. There's nobody exempt from this. So what's happening when that happens? We're still new wine drinkers. But at the fork, that pull toward the old wineskin road can be so strong because we've been on that road before and we have plowed deep and easy ruts to follow on that road because of our past. And it's a real battle. And here's why I think it's a battle. Because at the, at, at the head of, of those two forks in the road, the, the old wineskin road and the new wineskin road, four powers stand At the head of the old wineskin road, there is the world, the flesh, and the devil. They all have their own unique way of enticing us. But at the head of the new wineskin road is one person, it's Jesus. So that every time we come to that fork in the road of where am I gonna go, am I gonna live out of my new life or am I gonna live out of my old life, it becomes an authority issue. Who will I submit to? Who will I follow? And the world of flesh and the devil can make that old wineskin road feel so appealing. It's, it's easy. We, we know it well. And though it has never gotten us really to the good life that we long for, it has felt somewhat good at times, or at least for a time. But we know. I know I know. And... I'm, I sure hope you know that it will always, always disappoint us. In the end, it always promises more than it delivers. Only Jesus at the head of the new wineskin road delivers what he promises, abundant life. And you know, knowing that, our choice at those moments ought to be a no-brainer, right? But I don't know about you, sometimes it doesn't feel like a no-brainer. So sometimes at the fork, we fork in the road, we pour our new wine into the wrong container. Call the old wineskin the old man, the flesh, the old nature, whatever you want to call it, it it doesn't matter, but it can't hold the new wine. But like the Pharisees, we we try to cover ourselves at at times like that. Uh, We we hang our arguments for the preference for the old wineskin road on our old thinking, on our non-gospel thinking. Uh, For example, um, it's just the way I am. Um, Everybody's doing it. I've tried, but I I can't change. Nobody's perfect. If you knew the pressure I'm living under, or if you were married to my, or more contemporarily, what you see is what you get.
that kind of old wineskin talk freely accepts old, old wine, but not new wine. Or we, we, try to, we try to mix the two, new wine into the old wineskin. You know, for example, new wine says, right, I'm, one of the things new wine says, I'm completely accepted by God. That's all I need. Trusting and resting in the truth that regardless of my circumstances, regardless how much I'm rejected by people or even by myself or, or, the, or the one I love the most, all is still well because I'm completely accepted by the one who really matters. God loves me and accepts me. And if that's where we stay, that new wine pours into new wineskin living very, very easily. But then when I take that new wine truth and try to pour it into the old wineskin behavior of, man, I, I just gotta be accepted by you. And I'm gonna manipulate or do anything that I possibly can do to get you to really like me and to, to accept me and think that what I do and I say is exactly right. And then I will really feel accepted because then I've got God and you. And wow, who could feel more accepted than that? It doesn't work. That's, that's new wine into old wineskin thinking. And it goes, Now let's get really practical here for a few minutes. Pharisees had a choice, right? And so do we, over and over and over again. It's not like this. I thought this was pretty cool. It's, I mean, <laughs> there's just two choices. You, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. There's, there's just two. But we must choose, and we do choose every day, time and time, over and over again. And our choices are always a response to something that happens in our life most of the time. Your hus husband does something that yanks your chain again. Uh, you get passed over for a promotion, maybe, again. Um, a friend disappoints you, possibly again. Your car breaks down, hopefully not again. You're tempted to flirt with a coworker, probably again. Your kids do exactly what you don't want them to do, surely again. It's, and it's easy to think that life happens and I respond. Life happens, I respond. Over and over and over. And sometimes my response is good. I'm happy with it. God's happy with it. And sometimes it's, well, it's, it's not quite so good. But how about this? What if instead it was something like this? Life happens, gap, I respond. Life happens, gap, I respond. We can almost always, not always, but almost always create a gap between life happening and how we respond. Sometimes very, very short, sometimes much, much longer. And then in that gap, fill it with a question something like this. You, you, you make up your own. As a new wine person, what is the deep desire of my heart to choose, old wineskin road or new wineskin road? And stop and think and pray and do whatever is necessary at that particular point. Because the choice is ours. Uh, I had a life happens thing yesterday. I had time to create a gap before the response but I didn't. Now, in this one, 
I'm pretty sure I didn't sin because I didn't take a gap. But I'm pretty sure that if I had created a gap, which I had the opportunity to do, create a gap, that my response would have been much more mature and wise than it actually was not stopping to create a gap and to talk to God about it. Now, this is really important to me. Don't sit there thinking that I'm just talking about behavior modification. I am not. Follow me. Bailey Brown has, has really challenged me and a number of other people. She chooses one word at the beginning of each year uh, for her life with God, and then she pays attention to that word day after day after day just to see what God is going to do with it. And uh, as a result, our whole community group now each of us have a, a, a word for the year that we're being challenged with. Jan and I each have a word, but Jan and I actually got, took a word for our marriage as well for this year. Now, most of you can't relate to this yet, but as you get old, der, <laughs> your energy hits a slippery slope, and it hits that slope earlier and earlier in the day. And when that starts to do that, that is not the... That is not the environment in which it is easy for you to act lovingly with your spouse. Now, I know that all married couples get that way when they get tired. But yours doesn't start until 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Ours starts at 4 or 5 in the afternoon. <laughs> and that is no joke, guys. That is no joke. Somehow, you know, we can all work up the energy to be warm and fuzzy and happy if you're with friends, right, but with your spouse, forget it. Just let it all hang out. So we chose the word kindness. And I want to tell you, um, it's been really different since January 1 since we chose that word. I mean, really different. We had gotten to the point where we were, we were experiencing shortness, flippancy, harshness with each other, much more than we would ever want to Want to, want to admit. But now when we come to that fork of having that opportunity when we're tired and we can either go, oh yeah, write it off, or no, I, I, I don't have to be that way. And we stop in the gap and ask God to give us the kindness we need. And, and I've got to tell you, it's been really different. But Hear me now, it's, it's not just remembering the word that's the silver bullet, but it's, but it's that the Spirit sees our desire to live out the new wine in our relationship, and he works in us to do it, so it's still all grace. But somehow I'm a player. Um, if you wouldn't get bored, I'd quote Dallas Willard every time I preach this quote. Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. I'm putting effort into this to remember the word and to, to put myself in a gap and all, I'm putting effort into it. Let me go on. My point is not that you too should practice this tool. Walk out of here and choose a word. I'm not saying that at all. It may not, may not work for you. My, my point is to get you to think about we have choices day by day by day to walk the old wineskin road or to walk the new wineskin road. 
And I'm really clueless as to what kind of effort that would take on your part at that moment of choice in that gap. But I'm, I'm very confident that God will lead you um, and he'll probably give you all kinds of ways to, to learn to respond in that gap. And honestly, for me, um, the interplay of my choice and God's power is a total mystery. I'd love to be able to understand it and tell you, here's, here's how it works. I, I have no clue. All I know is that somehow I'm a player in action by choosing New Wineskin Road and in my attitude by believing that I am simply making myself available to the Holy Spirit to do his work in and through me. Work which I could never do myself anyhow, and I know that. I've tried for many, many decades to do that. And you know, if I were aware of when he does that, if I were consistently aware of it, I, I would find myself saying at that moment, oh, yeah, that's, that's the good life. I mean, that's, that's what I was created for. I was created for God to work through me. And I'd say, thank you, thank you, Lord. And please, don't stop. Don't stop. Quote the verse again from 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And here's what I'm doing this morning. I'm trusting God that he will take these truths and do in your life with them, first of all, whatever pleases him. And secondly, whatever will bless you. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we do long to have you as fully formed in us as is possible in our days on this earth. We, lo we long for the aroma of your likeness to get sweeter and stronger day by day, year by year, and until, until that day when you come and you take each of us home to be with you, and when then that aroma will be at its fullness. Would you teach us and empower us to choose to walk the new wineskin road and to sense your new wine in us aging and ripening and maturing and becoming the vintage which on that day, that, that great wedding feast day, wedding feast of the Lamb, that you will be able to at that point savor us because of what you have poured into and matured in us and what we have been able to pour out for you into the lives of others. In your name, the name above all names, amen. Now when we dine with Jesus at this table week after week, we're reminded that um, we are new wine drinkers. Um, 
the wine, of course, which is a, is a picture of his blood poured out for us. But not only at this table are we reminded of that, it's to help us literally minute by minute be reminded of that. So I invite you to come to the table. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I invite you to come to the table to eat and drink again. And then as you walk back to your seat, I'd encourage you to remember what it cost him to have the grapes of his body and soul crushed to be the ingredients of that new wine for you.